Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, no housekeeping today. Jumping right into it. Today I'm speaking with Thomas Chatterton Williams. Thomas is the author of two memoirs. The first is Losing My Cool, and the second, the book under discussion, is Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race. And Thomas is a wonderful writer. He has written for the New York Times Magazine, Harper's, the London Review of Books, and other journals. And here we talk about the reality and politics of race and cover many aspects of that question from his unique point of view as someone who is both the product of an interracial marriage and in one himself. Anyway, his take on the topic is fascinating and quite refreshing. And now I bring you Thomas Chatterton Williams. I am here with Thomas Chatterton Williams. Thomas, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I have to say that my French mother-in-law is going to be extremely impressed. She's a huge fan of your meditation practice, but she oh. doesn't even know that you do this other work. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, that's, that's probably as it should be. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, yeah, I feel like I, I know her a bit from your book. You've written a, um, a wonderful memoir, Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race. And uh, I think we'll just we'll use that as the, as the focus of our discussion. Before we, we dive in, how do you summarize your career thus far as a writer and, and your interests? What have you tended to focus on? Sure. I studied philosophy in undergrad, and, and then I got a master's degree in cultural reporting and criticism in the journalism department of NYU. And I came out of grad school with a kind of coming-of-age memoir I was working on called Losing My Cool. And I thought that that would just be the only memoir I'd ever write. And, you know, I started writing magazine journalism and essays and criticism, literary criticism. But here I am with a second memoir, and I've kind of, maybe I've put myself on a track to become a serial memoirist without having meant to. But I kind of, I, I always write about race and class and culture and identity through the prism of personal experience. I try to use my own personal experience to get at something, something larger. Yeah, well, you, you have a, happily, a very... I guess it's it's fairly unique personal experience, which allows you to dissect the strands of what's perhaps at least perceived to be the most prevailing social problem of our time, and it's been that way for a long time. Perhaps I'm speaking somewhat provincially as an American, but the problem of race and everyone's reaction to it, and it's you know the, the legacy of it. How old are you, Thomas? I'm 38. Right, so you're 38 and you've written your second memoir, which is... <laughs> which, to my father's chagrin, yeah. Which is hilarious, but appropriate because it's, it's a great book and, and has a lot to offer by way of informing our, our discussion, as our listeners are about to discover. So perhaps summarize how you view your own racial identity, how you viewed it. It's obviously an evolving self-concept, which you sure, talk yeah. about a lot in the book, but how have you come to this question? and perhaps summarize the dynamics of, of your marriage and fatherhood, because there's there some surprises. I guess I'll, I'll tee it up for you by saying that you at one point published an op-ed arguing essentially for the, the durability of, of race in your case and the 
the unequivocal fact that your children will be black, no matter what else might be true about them. How has your thinking along those lines been revised? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I grew up, I was born in 1981. I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey in the 80s and 90s. My father is a black man from the segregated South from Texas. He was born in 1937, so he's really old enough to be my grandfather. Mm. And he's a sociologist by training. And my mother is a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed daughter of evangelical Christians from Southern California. So I grew up in a mixed-race household in New Jersey, but very much with a black identity and with the understanding from both of my parents that we were a black household and that there's really no such thing as being partially white, that you're you're either white or you're not, because whiteness is a kind of constructed identity, but it's very real in the world we'd have to learn to move through. So people wouldn't perceive mm. us as, as white, and we'd need to, you know, understand ourselves as, as, as black in this racialized world and, you know, and embrace it, not just accept it, but embrace it. And it wasn't even until the year 2000 when I got to college that you could even check more than one box on the census. So I didn't really think of myself as mixed. I didn't know a lot of people. I didn't meet anybody who defined themselves as biracial until I got to college, even though I knew black people of all variety of skin tones and hair textures, but no one, no one who would define themselves as something other than black. And is that true regardless of someone's appearance? I mean, if someone, yeah. no matter how fair-skinned someone is in the end, and no matter how much they, quote, pass or can pass for white, that you, in your experience, people don't take the other side of that identity and say that they're white or they say that they're biracial or mixed race? Well, there's a couple things that that had been my experience, but also things were changing already in the culture. So I came up, I sometimes think that I'm probably the last generation for which the, the logic of the one drop rule of hypodescent, that a single drop of black blood necessitates that you are only black, that that really kind of is compelling on a, you know, it, it really makes sense out of something other than like a kind of solidarity level. That, that makes sense on a scientific level or something like that. I, I didn't really question that on a biological level for most of my life. I don't think that that's where the culture is exactly anymore. I think that we're a lot more familiarized with mixedness than we were when I was a kid, certainly. But I never met, I never met so-called black people like my children. So I, I don't know if in the culture that I grew up in, to answer your question, I don't know if my daughter and son would be perceived or would have a plausible route to self-identify as black, appearing as they do. Right. I mean, so it's like if, if, for instance, you had, and we're kind of giving away the, the punchline here in terms of your own experience of fatherhood, but if you had looked like your children, do you think your father would have been as adamant in in defining your identity as black? My father's an interesting guy. So he, I have wonderful recollections. I mean, he's still alive. I have wonderful memories of, you know, him saying with a straight face to me that my mother's not white. She's light-skinned because she's got black consciousness, you know? So my father could kind of probably, he probably could wrap his mind around my kids being black because one of the first things he said to me when he came to Paris when my daughter Marla was born six years ago he held her and I said well you know she doesn't really look so so black does she and he said she's just a palomino you know I went to school on the segregated side of town with you know with more than one person who was colored similarly so this is nothing new in the black community he said 
Mm. So I think he actually could, he could deal with it. He could accept it. He could integrate that into his understanding of blackness. But I don't think that as soon as anyone stepped outside of the house, that that would be how the world would accept us or perceive us. I think that there would be an enormous amount of pushback were you to look like these children and to walk out into the world kind of proclaiming the the sense of yourself that I advocated in the New York Times a year before my daughter was born in the op-ed you were referring to. Mm. Right. Okay. So so uh, fast forward to your own marriage and progeny. Yeah. So I lived 30 years of um, kind of unexamined life from a racial perspective. I accepted that great harm was done through the imposition of racial identity and the construction of blackness and whiteness, but that, you know, it was how the world was and, you know, and, and it was really nothing to push back against. And in fact, it was, there was a kind of moral duty I felt for mixed race blacks to adhere to a kind of racial essentialism because I felt that people who could break away, if they broke away from a historically oppressed group, it would weaken the group. So there was a kind of moral reasoning mm. that I tried to lay out in this op-ed. But in retrospect, I realized that that op-ed was really written to convince an audience of one, and that that audience was myself, because I was already married to a woman who was colored very much the way my mom is, and I was, I think, on some level understanding that I would very likely have children who would not read as black to anyone but but me. Mm. So, but, you know, I even convinced my wife, this is not really a very European way of seeing things. Uh, Europeans who grew up in societies that never had slavery within their national borders don't have this idea of the one-drop rule at all. You know, Alexandre Dumas was a much, you know, these, we're using these words unscientifically, but he was a blacker-looking guy than my children are. But, you know, that wasn't, his identity wasn't defined that way, the way that it would be in America. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois was certainly someone who was heavily descended from Europe. You know, we, we have a history of very, very European-looking people dis- defining themselves as blacks that we don't have here in Europe. But I prevailed mm-hmm. upon my wife to kind of accept this, this way of seeing things. And so for the next nine months after she got pregnant, we just accepted that we were going to have black children and be a black family, kind of reproducing the identity that I grew up with in my household. But when my daughter was, when I was standing in the delivery room and the doctor started calling out, I can see the head, she said, she described it as a tête dorée, which is, you know, I was sluggish, it was the middle of the night, but I realized she's saying that there's a golden head protruding. Right. <laughs> and when my daughter, you know, opened her eyes and was out in, in our arms, I realized that whatever I thought I knew about race, she was, she was shaking it to the core. She had kind of thrust what I call the fiction of race into my consciousness for the first time. Her physical presence in my life made me question these categories in a way that my own kind of contradictory childhood upbringing never forced you know me to think through the same way yeah yeah well the the variable of nationality is incredibly important here the the difference between how this all looks in america as an american and how it it looks in europe given the different histories it's huge and so it's, it's almost like when you're insisting to your wife that your unborn kids will be black and the revealed inaccuracy, if not absurdity, of that when they come out looking Swedish, really looking Swedish, Swedish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Black and African American are, are used as synonyms in in America, right? It doesn't, it's ridiculous to use African American outside of America, right? But it's almost like you were you were insisting, 
you know, our kids are going to be African American, right? Because you're insisting on the the American view of the durability of race. That's right. Which doesn't have the same logic in Europe. And there's also this level of confusion that exists in America, which is I, what I was doing actually without realizing it was I was conflating something biological with something ethnic, with something cultural, with something based on a, you know, a tradition and a loyalty to, to a historical oppression. All of these things were combined in my mind with a very abstract color category that actually doesn't apply to most so-called African-Americans' actual skin tone. Yeah. So, but the skin tone issue is is the the variable here because had your your daughter come out looking black, you would never have discovered the conversation that that you're having on the other side of this experience, right? You just would say, "Okay, well, my kids are black, just like I thought they would be." I wonder, even if she didn't have blue eyes and really blonde hair, if I would have been, you know, I I wonder. It doesn't make me question the the fundamental discovery or the or the truth as I see it now, but it makes me wonder if I would have just I hope that you don't have to actually see racial categories fall apart in your own intimate life for these kind of insights to really feel compelling. I would I would like to think that I could have arrived at the conclusion, but I'm just not sure that I was the person that would get there without being prompted this way. Well, my own experience of the the power of America and American history is it's, it's been brought home to me in in many contexts. But the the place where I, I first discovered it and where it's still most vivid to me is when I when I'm with my friend Ayan Hirsi Ali. Do you know Ayan? Mm-hmm. I've never met her. Right. So Ayan is Somali for for those who don't know her, and you know she looks Somali. So she's you know to look at her she's more or less as black as anyone, but she's Somali. She's not African-American. She's, you know, she lived in Europe. She's incredibly cosmopolitan, speaks half a dozen languages, and she's never had the African-American experience. She lives in America now, so maybe she's belatedly getting a, a taste of it. But the reality is, is that she doesn't think of herself as black the way most African-Americans think of themselves as black. And she manages to communicate that lack of identity just, you know, it's coming out of her pores, right? So when you're, you're, when you're with her, there's something that's not happening for her that is communicated, right? It's like she just does not see the world in those terms. And the conversation doesn't even have to be about race. It may never touch race. But I realized, to my surprise, that it basically never occurs to me that she's black, apart from the fact that it's useful to talk about her experience in conversations like this, right? It's like, I mean, I know that a racist would view her as black, you know, a white supremacist would view her as black. And, and many anti-racists would view her as black, too. They would say that she, she yeah. whether she likes it or not, whether she has different experiences or not in America, she is confronted with white supremacy in the same way that other black bodies are. That's, that's kind of what can unite racist and anti-racist actually is this kind of yeah essentialist exactly i mean and that's and that's something that i've complained about a lot on this podcast and i'm sure i'll complain about it here is that the only people who are as fixated on the on the significance of race and its and its permanence as white supremacists are are the are the you know the irretrievably woke on the left who insist that 
this is a concept we're never going to get beyond. Right. But in the presence of someone like Ayan, you feel yourself to be beyond it. You feel yourself to be living in a post-racial world because of how she's living. And and it's it's just, it's so clear that, it's clear to me, and it seems to be clear to you from what I've read, that the goal has to be to get to a post-racial society. Yeah, yeah. As long as you, racism really creates race. Racism is a way of seeing, it's a, it's a perceptive error, as the philosopher Adrian Piper points out, and I'm really fond of quoting her on that, because the imposition of this perceptive error doesn't allow me to interact with you or engage with you as an individual. There is all kinds of history and stereotypes and myths that kind of come between me and you. So as long as we code people into, into racial categories, that's going to necessarily imply all types of value judgments and hierarchical implications. So I th we have to find a way to get beyond this. I'm not so naive as to think that, you know, my book is going to, you just buy my book and, 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 and suddenly we solve the problem of race and we get to a post-racial world. I don't even know that I, um, I think that word, that term has been irredeemably corrupted. Post-racial, now we, people can't say that in an unironic way. On the left, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's just yeah. obviously ridiculous on the left and it's been... Yeah spat out so many times that you actually can't reclaim that as it is a useful phrase? Probably not. But, you know, I want to stay with the idea of someone like Ayan Hirsi Ali a little bit, because this is actually something that I think makes a lot of sense. Are you, are you familiar with, like, ADOS, American Descendants of Slavery, this, this kind of hashtag movement that's become popularized no. on Twitter? No. Well, it's a kind of grassroots movement, descendants of American slaves who advocate for understanding American descendants of slavery as, as a distinct ethnic group and that monolithic blackness actually doesn't make sense because a woman like Ayan Hirsi Ali or Nigerian immigrants that come into America, to conceive of them as having the same experience and facing the same hurdles is demonstrably false. And also these groups don't. Nigerian immigrants, for example, are that's one of the most successful ethnic groups in America. But when it all gets talked about as blackness as though it's interchangeable, I think uh I mean the the disadvantage of race in American society is specific. It's not to say that it doesn't exist anywhere else I and mean, that there are variants of this in in completely different cultures, but it's specific to the American experience and and slavery is the the founding sin which is we're still paying for in a wide variety of ways politically and and economically. So, and this is something you you do touch in your book that that the problem of race and and you know, social disparities there is 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 mingled with the problem of class, and teasing those apart is difficult. Absolutely, I mean that's why. How can a program at Harvard or someplace that's supposed to you know, how can an affirmative action slot for someone who's undergone slavery in America? How can that? How can a Nigerian immigrant be swapped into that? Because they don't. There's nothing genetic about whatever that program is supposed to repair. There's something that happened to a specific group of people in a specific places at a specific time. So for me, the, the, one of the main problems of moving through the world with racial language and categorizing people into abstract color categories is that it, it just obfuscates all of these complex things that make us who we are and that impact our lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you make one move in the book, and it's, it's not clear how fully you make it to me. So I want to talk about this, but you, you, you seek to 
undermine the concept of race rather completely as as a fiction. I mean, at one point you just call it a fiction, and and you say that it's a social construct. It's not a biological one, and you know that's in some ways that's true. In some ways it's not true, though. And and it's and I feel like you're you're making a potentially dangerous move in in disavowing any relevant biology here because it's not an accident that you can know something about a person's ancestry based on just looking at them right i mean i can i can look at someone whose ancestors spent the last 1000 years in china and say that person looks chinese to me and i'd never be tempted to say that he looks like he came from norway and so that's obviously that's just the surface level then there's you talk about susceptibility to various diseases and any other trait that would have a genetic explanation in in whole or in part so there is a biological story here around race it's just it doesn't align with the social construct in every case and in and in certain cases it completely breaks apart so that you know for instance the place where there's the most genetic diversity at this moment on earth is on the continent of africa right so if you if you're going to take the the white racist view of africa well just you know everybody's black obviously but that doesn't track the actual historical isolation of various populations and the genetic diversity that's there. And, but the, the reality is, is that genetic diversity does produce consequences that people can find interesting, whether it's in susceptibility to, to disease or various traits. And I, I think the, the place we need to get to in transcending race is not to deny that these biological facts exist and may yet surprise us is to deny that they have any political significance for us. I mean, we just don't, we shouldn't care about any of these things rather than commit ourselves in advance to remaining unaware of them or denying that they exist. Well, there's a few things that I would say to that. The first is that, first of all, like with things like diseases like sickle cell is often brought up as like a, a black disease but in fact it seems that that's a disease that groups that are that populations that are exposed to malaria develop and you can find many greeks who develop sickle cell traits and the idea that it's an inherently black disease doesn't really hold up to scrutiny but i do in the book quote david reich the harvard geneticist yeah. whose op-ed um really impacted my thinking, his op-ed in the New York Times a few years ago, where he basically just cautioned us all to have a lot of humility because the only thing that's probably guaranteed with the increasing knowledge that we're getting in the field of genetics is, is, is that we're going to find out a lot of things that surprise us, and a lot of what we think we know now as a fact can be overturned. So I take that seriously. But what we talk about when we talk about population groups is not exactly the same thing as what we talk about when we talk about black and white. Yeah. I don't understand, and I've never seen somebody or heard somebody, encountered somebody, explain to me where a white person stops and a black person starts. And I think that these things get very tangled up in a place like America, because the average African American, the average black American, however you define that group, has something like 20 to 25% uh, Western European, usually Anglo-Saxon, genetic makeup. And there are millions and millions of 
white Americans walking around who have no idea and until recently wouldn't be able to know that they have sometimes significant African, West African DNA in them because that's the whole history of rape and passing and lots of different things that have happened in this society. In another time, you know, people colored like my children, they might choose to hide the fact that they have a black grandfather and just move into white society. That happened many times. We are a mongrel nation. We're a mongrel society. What Leon Wieseltier said that really means a lot to me is that, you know, the achievement of America wasn't to create a multicultural society. It was to create the multicultural individual. I take that seriously. I, I, I struggle to understand how we can ever find a definition of racial groups and divisions that um, is coherent enough to make sense. Because I was really thinking about all of these things in the conversation that you had with Charles Murray. Mm. And I find that it's really important to, when we think about these things, does this population group have, on average, a different IQ than this population group on average? First of all, what are the bounds of the population group? And second of all, I understand your point, which is, how does that affect the individual? We live our lives as individuals. I, I don't understand what it means to be dumped into, or not dumped, but lumped into some enormous group like monolithic whiteness. What links a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant with a Sicilian or a Spaniard, or for that matter, with somebody who comes from the Caucasus Mountain region? What, what does it mean to say that these are all whites? Yeah. It defies... I don't understand what, how, how do we define these groups? How do we then compare these groups? And also, how do we take these measures like intelligence? And we've never even lived in a world where we really have seen what parity looks like. So I, th these things kind of, to your point, what's the purpose? Yes, but also, even if there were a purpose, show me first how we can measure these things. Right. Well, so there's a lot in that I agree with. I, I think the, the definitions of these things, the concepts like race, Where's the bright line between a white person and a black person in America? There may not be one, right? I mean, in my Corey view, Booker has over fifty percent European ancestry. Right. Okay. You know what I mean? So, and then, and then there's just you know, in, in the case of someone like yourself or someone like uh, Booker or I have sixty percent um, uh, so-called Western Northern European ancestry. Right. And so, or Barack Obama. There seems to be it's an interesting social choice to decide to call yourself black or decide to call yourself white or or mixed race and it seems to me to be a deeply uninteresting and and probably politically toxic project to try to give a genetic answer to the question of of self identity in those cases but it's also very arbitrary where we decide where do groups start and stop i mean chatterman 10,000 years ago in living in what's now the United Kingdom, had blue eyes and, and, and black skin. Mm. I mean, these groups are fungible. People are fungible. We will continue to change and mix. So the idea that we can just like take a freeze frame of how people look today in groups that we've been calling white, black, Asian, which is a very vague term, you know, that, that people will always be like this. I mean, we've only been saying people have been like this for four or 500 years. I, I mean, I have actually... I've eaten at restaurants, I've drunk at taverns in Europe that are continuously operating. I've slept in a hotel in Weimar that's much older than the concept of, of race and the way that we think of it mm. today, you know? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. But it's one thing to acknowledge all of those facts. It's another to doubt whether there are 
differences between groups, however we define them, and that those differences can be in the wrong hands can be made to seem to matter. And and sure. so, so the only response to that that I hear many people advocating for is to deny that such differences, that it's coherent to allege that such differences exist or that they could conceivably matter. And I just think that that's a, that's a fear-based counsel of of ignorance of certain facts. I mean, just to take it to take it in a politically uncharged case. Before this conversation, I, in reading your book, I, you know, you're encountering the, these the issue of you just, you know, what your ancestral background is, and you talk about you know, having looked at the various websites, 23andMe and Ancestry.com, and I realized I had a an account at 23andMe, and so you know, literally like an, an hour ago, I I, <laughs> I checked my ancestry, and there's a few things to observe about this. First, I'm I'm 51% Ashkenazi and 32% British Irish, I think 6% French, and then there was some other like 9%, you know, Northern European. So it was I knew the gist of this, but I mean, one thing that's interesting is that you know I've had these data for what at least a decade. I mean, I, I think I, I subscribed to 23andMe the, the moment it was born, right? So it was hmm. that could be 15 years. I don't I don't remember. I find these facts about myself so utterly uninteresting that I, I have never, you know, I'm sure I checked 10 years ago and I knew, I mean, I knew I was, you know, half Ashkenazi and, and, you know, the rest, you know, European in some sense, but these are facts about me that have no relevance at all. And I, you know, I have an aunt who is obsessed with ancestry and she's constantly trying to get me to uh, take an interest in this. And I just have, I've never had even if I could meet these people in person, I wouldn't be interested, right? <laughs> so it's like, on some level, this is all an expression of my, quote, white privilege, right? Like, I haven't had to take an interest in any of this. I mean, this is like, I'm just imagining a, cr a criticism that someone could allege. This is not how I see myself. There's nothing about my pedigree that is part of my identity. And so from this point of view of just of being totally uninterested in my race, I see certain potential facts as both true, undoubtedly true and there to be found, and totally unthreatening. So for instance, you know, apparently I've got 32% British and Irish DNA. I am sure that if you tested every person on earth, you've got the, the total population of people who have more than 30% British and Irish DNA, you could find a dozen invidious comparisons to make between them and people with a different genotype, right? So if we finally, you know, find the gene for being a jerk, you know, we're going to have more of it than the Swedes, say, or the, the Nigerians, or I mean, there's going to be a difference that can be spun as, as ugly. And it has absolutely no relevance to me as an individual, and it need have no relevance to our politics. And yet, but it would seem frankly crazy for me to say there is no there there biologically. There's no possible line of inquiry that could turn up something that is true there because, you know, we're all homo sapiens and there's just, there are no important differences among us. That's something that I'm not afraid of. If you were to find the, the, the smoking gun tomorrow that proves that um, East Asians are slightly smarter than, than Anglo-Saxons and that, uh, you know, that the comparison works against 
other groups favor when compared to Anglo-Saxons, I would, I would, if you, if you show me how that's provable, I'll accept that. And I also understand that that has nothing to do with how I move through the world. I'm an individual and sharing genetic ancestry with LeBron James has done nothing for my basketball game. Unfortunately. (laughs) I wish it did. You know, I've never understood, I've never really understood having enormous pride with, with your ethnic or, um, or so-called racial group, or even with your, you know, your nation in certain ways, and I've never understood having shame for these for these histories and um, and deeds that have been done to and by people you're supposedly related to. I mean, human life is unequal. There's enormous inequality within a four-person household. It isn't hard for me to believe at all that there's enormous inequality writ large. The idea that everybody is exactly the same would frankly be unappealing to me. There's a genetic component to this inequality, but there's also just a a circumstantial component to this inequality. I mean, the fact that, you know, if you have a a best friend who got into a car accident, you know, in childhood and and has some deficit as a result, you're now among the privileged of people who were spared car accidents at crucial moments, right? And sure, you know, there's no fine grained equality of circumstance ever, right? And so. What we we've seized upon certain course variables as the crucial ones, and I mean the goal has got to be to correct for disparities in luck. I mean, you know, privilege by another name, as much as we can, economically and educationally, and you know, just as a matter of opportunity. And so, and and that political commitment is the only the only assertion of equality. That I think we need to conserve all of our our ethics here. I I tend to agree with you, but I do think that there's something particularly insidious with insisting, and I'm not saying that you do, but in the discourse as it proceeds from both the racist and the anti-racist kind of advocate, there's something that is there's harm done to society when we insist that these color categories are real, are meaningful, and that you can fit people into these boxes. I think that the term for me is what Glenn Lowry called transcendent humanism. I mean, life is lived on the individual level. We have to have values and ways of belonging to each other that unite us. Mm. Not blood and skin and these kinds of ideas that have caused such human suffering over the past half millennium. You know, I, I really think that um, you can't redeem the language. I think we need a new language. You can't, these, these terms, mm. black, white, not only are they so vague and they fail to capture life as it's lived on the individual level, but they actually, we don't describe our reality. Our language produces our reality too. So these terms produce the racism that's inherent in them that comes from this kind of collision of Africa and Europe through the slave trade. Mm. And I think that, you know, I think that it's really important that the language be much more precise than the ways that we speak about race allow for. Yeah, well, I, I 100% agree with you there. So my conception of a, a post-racial future is one in which this notion of being black or white is so uninteresting that you would, it would never occur to you to, to mention this about another person or yourself, because there's, there's virtually no circumstance in which it's relevant. I think that has to be the goal. That has to be yeah. the end point that we want to get to. And I've been pretty surprised and dismayed that that is not an endpoint that is shared with many increasingly prominent voices on the left. So I made that same point last fall at Bard during a conference where 
Ibram X. Kendi was speaking, mm-hmm. you know, he made, a, I forget exactly what he said, but he, he alluded to this idea of a kind of post-racial future where, you know, you're, how you look tells me as little as possible about who you are. He said that that was the, actually the white supremacist, the racist fantasy that race go away and that all inequalities become camouflaged and baked into the system. And I said, you know, respectfully, I think that's not at all the white supremacist fantasy. The, white, the real racist fantasy is everybody is in a separate box and, and kept far away from each other. You know, in my reporting with the French far right, with these thinkers that had influenced Richard Spencer and some of these alt-right guys, Alain de Benoit and people like this, I wrote a long piece on this kind of thinking in, in, in France for The New Yorker a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. These guys tell you straight up that they certainly don't want a post-racial future. They, they want energized senses of, of racial identity. They want people to be hyper-aware of their whiteness, and they want those white people to be segregated and kept away from mixing. There's a depressing element when you realize that, that you're, you're fighting kind of on two sides. You're fighting, you're fighting on, on, on the left and the right to kind of carve out a space to just have an individual existence that's not defined by a racial essentialism. Yeah, well, you you mentioned Kendi, but you also you write about Tanhasi Coates in the book, and I mean this is something that I've struggled with because on one level it's it's very tempting to try to have a conversation with Coates. He's he's held up as a as a secular saint on the left, and his his wisdom and prescriptiveness around race as an issue is just assumed to be more or less perfect from the, the crowd who reads the kinds of journalism I read, you know, the Atlantic readers and the people who would go to the Aspen Ideas Festival or to TED, the man can do no wrong. And yet to my eye, he is a kind of pornographer of race, right? He's a, he's a good writer, but he's somebody who is trafficking in, maybe it's honest, it, it, it reads as dishonest to me, but it's, if it's honest, it is a, a symptom of his own unhappy experience that he's, he's viewing the world in these ways, that race is something that, that we can't even imagine getting past in America. And, and this is quite distinct from the merits of any specific position. I mean, I, I'm, I'm actually quite open-minded on whether or not you know, reparations is something we, we should be talking about. And in fact, maybe even pain. I, I, don't, I don't quite know all the hard work is in the details of, you know, who and how sure, and yeah. what. And, but it's, it's a completely legitimate thing to think about from my point of view and, and probably even a necessary one. But and perhaps we can, you know, we can talk about that. And it'll, but when I was talking to, you know, Coleman Hughes about it, Coleman is, is against it. It's just not clear to me which end is up there. And it's, it's certainly worth talking about. But in Coates's hands, it is just a lever he pulls again and again to some strange advantage or perceived advantage that is just shifting nothing other than the white guilt of his fawning audience. And it just seems to me that, that his invocation of race is generally in, in bad faith, and he will find it as the master variable everywhere, even where it, it manifestly doesn't exist. I mean, even where the explanation for what has gone wrong in the world in cases where you can perfectly dissect out the variable of race, he and, and his, his fans will tend not to see that. And so I, it's, 
on some level, it's a conversation I, I don't think can be had, at least with him. I don't know. Have you, have you been on stage with him? Have you ever debated him? No, never. He, I've met him in earlier, much earlier in his career, and he was a very polite person to interact with in, in those limited situations. But since I, in 2015, I wrote a long critical piece on Between the World and Me and the London Review of Books. And since then, if we've ever been invited to debate, he's very politely declined and mm. said that he prefers to speak alone. So I've never debated him. My One of the things in Between the World and Me that really bothered me was this way that um, he seemed to give short shrift to the idea that blacks can never have any form of agency over their own lives, that we're all kind of and whites, too, for that matter, in a different way, that whites also don't have agency because we're all kind of enthralled to systems of white supremacy that are much larger than us and that will continue in his, in, in, in his book, actually, will continue until the kind of ultimate evil of white supremacy, which is the exploitation of the earth through carbon extraction, will mm -hmm. kind of just reset the game, you know? It's such a bleak view, and it doesn't really... Even before I had the kind of experiences that I detail in my book of kind of moving in the direction of actually saying that I'm no longer going to use racial language just to describe myself. You know, it really bothered me because it, it didn't describe the, the black life that I felt that I had had. It didn't describe the black life that I felt my father had. My, my father would never want to call himself somebody who didn't exercise choices. And, you know, he would, I don't think that my father would feel comfortable saying, well, I know he wouldn't feel comfortable saying that race wasn't a factor in his life. And he certainly knows what racism is. But the idea that implacable white supremacy shapes every aspect of his life would, would, would be something that he couldn't tolerate. You know what I mean? There's a scene in Coates's book where, you know, he and his, his young child are coming out of a movie theater on the Upper West Side of New York. And in the, in, in the thrust to get down the the escalator, a woman pushes his son, who he says was dawdling. But he says that she pushed him and all of his history was hot and he, he screamed at her and he yelled at her and, and some other people intervened and said that they would call the cops. And he describes this as a straightforwardly racist incident. But I don't know, I just, I, maybe it's, I grew up around all kinds of different white people. I grew up around a white mother. So the idea that, um, a white person can do wrong that's not racially motivated seems normal to me. She, this woman could have just been angry, could have been having a bad day, could have been an, an asshole. You know, many different factors can explain that other than this kind of history of white supremacy that is inescapable and that conditions every single interaction yeah. people will ever have. And will, so that's really where I felt that he took a turn in his writing and, and, and it became very pessimistic and very dark. And before that, it had been much more kind of explorative and open. and. One of the things that I went back and looked at, you know, a book that was very, very um, influential to my own thinking is called Racecraft, The Soul of American Inequality by Barbara and Karen Fields, two sisters, a sociologist and a historian. And this is a book that actually, when I pulled it out, you know, a few months ago and looked at the back cover, I realized Ta-Nehisi Coates had blurbed it. This is a book that argues hmm. against race. You know, it, it, it says that race is not real, that racecraft functions in our society the way witchcraft functions in certain African societies or used to function in Salem, Massachusetts. There's no such thing as a witch, but you can be burned at the stake if you're perceived as a witch and, you know, that race is not real. He blurbed the book. Th this is the type of thinker that he used to be. Then there was a kind of turn 
And the first white president, this essay that kind of was, I think it's the last thing he wrote in The Atlantic, it was about Donald Trump. Yeah. And he talked about this kind of, this heirloom of, of whiteness and white supremacy that was kind of a medallion of eldritch energies is how he described it, the, the bloody heirloom that just gets passed down. And it, it was essentially describing race as an essence, as whiteness as an essence. And, and you know, that's where that, I wrote an op-ed in the Times comparing this kind of thinking to exactly the kinds of things that, that Richard Spencer and some of these people would say about whiteness. They do think it's also an essence that gives a certain type of people a specialness. Again, there are so many circumstances which admit of other interpretations, and these interpretations, even the possibility of their truth is denied reflexively if you're viewing race as the master variable. So, so the incident you cite in, in Coates's book, where a, you know, a, a white woman, you know, a rude white woman pushes one of his kids out of the way, and he explodes, right? And then some bystanders intervene on her behalf and tell him to calm down or they'll call the cops. He views the entire thing, including the response of the bystanders, as a symptom of white racism. Whereas, I mean, just imagine the point of view of a bystander who hasn't seen anything until they see a large man raving at a He's woman. He's well over six feet tall. Yeah, right. So, so if, I, if I just, if all I hear is the loud voice of a man, you know, who's now shouting in the face of a probably visibly terrified woman, what do you think I'm going to do? And is, it, and is it necessarily an expression of racism to say, hey, calm down, you know, we're going to call the cops? At minimum, there's a potentially charitable interpretation. This is not to say that maybe, maybe he was surrounded by white supremacists at that moment. I have no idea. But it's just there are so many circumstances that, that admit of dual interpretations. And if, if you're insisting upon the the moral and political necessity of always seeing the world in terms of racial disparities and racism and essential whiteness and American society, you know, all of its wealth has been extracted by in this vampiric way, you know, from the bodies of black men and women. I mean, it's, it's nuts. And it's, it takes the form of, this may seem a fairly effete example, but it, I mean, this is the kind of thing that's happening on the left that has signaled to me that, that we're in the presence of a moral panic or a social movement that is functioning like a, like a cult by the dynamics, by the unreasoning and non-error-correcting dynamics of a cult. I have a, a friend who, who told me about a, a woman in his, in his workplace, one of his colleagues, who she's black and she's, she has great hair that she's constantly transforming into something you know, amazing. And yet she considers any compliment on her hair yeah, to yeah. be a microaggression, right? If delivered from a, a non-black person, that is a, you're playing a game with the world that if not, if not a symptom of mental illness, it's the symptom of having been inducted into a way of viewing the world that is just guaranteed to manufacture all the problems you think you're discovering. Well, yeah, in you'll the world. create and welcome and invite those problems. I mean, it seems yeah. to me an imprisoning way to interact with the world. It's got to be so exhausting. That's the thing I get out of Coates in reading him. It's just, it's just exhausting to view the world this way. And now, again, this is in his world. This is a symptom of my white privilege that I can decide that his problem of being the victim of racism is exhausting. But again, he's written his books 
in the immediate, you know, during and in the immediate aftermath of a two-term black presidency, which, you know, perversely in his world becomes not even slightly a sign of progress. I mean, again, this is pre-Trump. I understand how it's tempting to reevaluate what's happened in, in, you know, I mean, there is a pendulum swing effect here. But under the Obama administration, to not acknowledge that any progress is being made on, on issues of race just seems perverse. Well, I think he also has the, the problem of not really being able to explain his own success with whites, his own enormous success and influence with exactly these kinds of people who are, who's buying his books by the millions and showing up at his sold-out auditorium talks to hear him guide them on correct thinking. Their very willingness to engage kind of belies the worst pessimism that he has that, that these things simply cannot change. Mm. You know, I think that he has, he has never accounted for his status among whites. It's, it's whites and elite publications and institutions that have, that have made his star rise. You know, so I think that any, any account of implacable white supremacy has to take into account his own life. If it can't, there's something that doesn't add up to me. Mm. Well, let's talk about the variable of class here. You know, arguably in American society, the consequences of wealth inequality and income inequality and education disparities, the way that's interacting with our politics is probably usurping race as a thing of of importance worth worrying about. And it comes up in your book, you describe what it was like to canvas for Obama, which was a pretty interesting and depressing, just your, your experience in doing it in, in black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. How do you view the variable of class here and the way in which it is interwoven with, with race? Sure. I mean, I think that you really, I mean, black Americans really have, as a group, suffered centuries of, 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 of oppression in the United States. And so, I mean, you had brought up the reparations argument. I haven't done a ton of thinking on this, but it, it seems clear to me that uh, if you were to want to get to a kind of post-racial, racially transcendent future, that some degree of material parity would need to be reached to help facilitate that. Our group has been exploited for a very long time and for much longer than it's not been exploited. So, you know, the class implications of race are, of course, real. To say that race is not real is not to deny legacies of racism. I just want to be clear about that. Well, do you, do you want to talk about reparations in this context? Do you have a, a view on it that you can... No, I'm, I'm, I'm very eager to see the, the, the recommendations that Sandy Darity from Duke and his team are going to... I believe they're supposed to bring it forth soon. They've been mm-hmm. working on a practical you know, on, on how to implement, how to decide who gets reparations. This would be where you, I think that they would argue that you make distinctions, ethnic distinctions among blacks, that Caribbean and West African immigrants would not be groups that get reparations. But I haven't seen it yet. It's not, I don't believe it's been released yet. But mm-hmm. I think that, you know, clearly, any kind of racial transcendence is going gonna, is gonna, to, there's going to be a material component to that that would help facilitate it. Any, you know, people, there are real disparities between whites and blacks. I don't think there's anything biological about that, but that's a fact. This was very compelling to me in, in, in Coates' case for reparations. I mean, there's still 
black men and women walking around who, and my father is one of them, he's 82 years old, there, there, there are still black men and women walking around who were shut out of participating in certain housing markets that were not able to get government-backed low-interest rate mortgages. And then that kind of initial wrong that was, you know, facilitated by the United States government and by the racist communities they were trying to buy into, right. that initial wrong is compounded over the generations. This is wealth that is not being handed down to me. It's not even being handed down to my blind-haired, blue-eyed children. You know, this, this, is, this is wealth that you could even probably measure pretty accurately that, that was denied people who are not some kind of, you know, long-gone group that experienced bad things in some fuzzy past, but people who are still with us, you know, uh, these things I think can be remedied and that would go a long way. And that's mm. a very, very, that's a very tangible way of repairing a harm. And it's not that, you know, th there's always so much resistance to this. You get people saying, well, my parents, my grandparents immigrated to the country. We were here well after slavery ended. Why do I owe black people anything? But it's not, it's not individual whites paying black people anything. It would be something that the United States government would be, I want to say this as accurate as, it would be something the United States government simply has to, has to do to make a certain group that it allowed to be exploited to make that group whole. Hmm. Yeah, well, insofar as you could find a discrete line of dominoes that have fallen to the disadvantage of the black community and put a price tag on those consequences, it becomes a, you know, very compelling to do that. I guess that the obvious objections are, you know, where does this stop? Because there are many other communities that can point to ways in which they've been disadvantaged, even, you know, systematically by some group in history and for which they, they would be tempted to come sure. up with a price tag. Some of these groups have been repaired, though. Some of these groups have, I mean, there, there are precedents for this kind of thing. I'm, yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not a reparations activist or anything, but I think that the conversation, the idea that the conversation can't even be broached seems strange to me. Yeah, no, I, I think it, I'm eager that it be broached, but I'm uh, doubly eager that it be delayed until <laughs> after no November of this year, oh, yeah. because yeah. I think doing it during the election is a disaster. But it seems to me that the greatest concern with reparations is not any kind of slippery slope argument or or you know who else is going to get in line by a similar logic it's more the um an objection that i i think i first saw raised by um john mcwarder he basically said okay I, i'm i'm open to this conversation about reparations it might be worth doing provided one thing which i think is very likely to be not given which is yeah if we did this if we actually cut a check of whatever enormous amount to solve this problem, that the people who are demanding reparations will acknowledge that the debt has been repaid. Forgive me, John, if I'm getting you slightly wrong, but this is, this is how I recall what you said. He thinks that, in fact, there's an element of bad faith in this reparations case. And in fact, what would happen is, you know, once the U.S. government cut a check of any size, let's say it's, you know, a trillion dollars, there would be people in, in the black community, you know, very likely Coates himself, who would say, if you think you can buy us off with a check, uh, you've got another thing coming. This does not actually get us back to zero. And if it doesn't, if we're going to be left in 
some sense in the same spot after doing all the math and making, you know, and imposing what will be perceived as a massive economic sacrifice on, you know, many millions of certainly unwilling people, in addition to the willing, what is the point of the exercise? I guess I've heard John make that point too. And I can't say that the probability of that happening would be zero. But I guess you would make the argument would be that to know whether that would happen or not, you would have to first make the good faith gesture, right? But I, but yeah, I'm, cer- I'm certain that an aspect of that is correct. But whether or not that that response would be convincing to most Americans, you know, it, it probably wouldn't be. But the, the, the gesture has never been made. And the, you know, the, the very basic investigation that um, Representative Conyers had been asking for for 40 years or, some, or something like that, you know, in Congress every year asking if they could just study the matter. Had never been studied. You know, I, I, I think that before we worry too much about whether or not people would accept it, we just haven't even come close to, to making the kinds of efforts to warrant that kind of skepticism, I think. And, and you know, and, I, and John is a guy I respect quite a lot. I just think that I'm a bit more agnostic on the, on, on the, on the matter of reparations than he is. Yeah, it seems to me there's another element here, which is that you can't get past the mismatch between you know, putting a dollar value on a multi-century atrocity and the moral enormity of the atrocity. It's like it's putting a dollar value on something like, you know, slavery and its effects or something like the Holocaust or any, any of these deformities of human history. It seems inadequate in principle. And therefore, I mean, I th- that, that might actually be part of John's concern. I mean, how could someone ever accept this. I mean, like, again, a check larger than... The truth is, if we went through this exercise, we would come out with some number, even the lump sum would seem measly on its face. Let's say it's $500 billion, right? So $500 billion, some genius will say, you know, that's not even half what we spend on defense every year, right? (laughs) You know, so even an enormous number will be inadequate. But when you parcel it out on the individual level, it will seem doubly inadequate. I mean, it'll come down to, you know, your dad will get a check for $17,000 or something ridiculous, right? But even if we had enough abundance such that, you know, we would cut a check that wouldn't seem ridiculous, that would actually materially change people's lives, it would still seem like a kind of moral error to think that that discharges the real debt. No, I find that quite compelling. I just wonder... And I don't have an answer, and I'm not even fully made up inside myself, but I just wonder if doing nothing and the number zero is not an even greater insult, you know? Yeah. Okay, so take me to the the variable of class and your experience canvassing for Obama. Well, you know, it was after Iowa in the 2008 campaign, and... um, my friend Josh, my buddy Casper, Josh is Jewish, Casper is from Germany, and I, we drove from New York down to West Baltimore to go door to door. And in, you know, in one of these neighborhoods that looks exactly like what you think of Baltimore from watching The Wire, you know, it, 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 was, it was a really impoverished neighborhood. And it was all black, and directly preceding us going door to door were a group of white missionaries. And so every door we would knock on, People would say, oh, the Jesus people are here. And we said, no, we're not the Jesus people. We're, we're here for, do you have a moment for Barack Obama? No one had heard 
of who Barack Obama was, but that wasn't so strange because he wasn't really so well known at that point. But many people had not heard of who Hillary Clinton was, which kind of alarmed me. And many people we we were interacting with, I mean, it was it was enormous poverty. People were not certain of, of, of the person we were asking for if they lived in the house. Some people answered the door very clearly using drugs. There were children selling drugs. I mean, it was it was really really a kind of poverty that I've not encountered in ten years living in in Brooklyn, you know. And in that moment, it really struck me as there was something really really odd and something that missed capturing any of this reality to say that I was unified with the neighborhood because I was black and Casper and Josh were were apart from me and and the difference was color and not that we were college classmates and that we were that we had all kinds of advantages that these these people that we were interacting with were never going to have it, it seemed to me that the racial difference was minuscule was and it was the conversation, the the way that we talk about these things, the, thing, the way that we describe that reality as a black reality, is woefully inadequate. And, and you also went to a a white neighborhood that was also that was poor and extraordinarily poor. Yeah. I'd never yeah. seen I'd never seen urban white poverty before. We went to Fishtown in Philadelphia, and it was a much more hostile environment to be walking around canvassing for for a Democrat, actually. There was no sense of menace in the Baltimore neighborhood, but there was actually in Fishtown. And, you know, there was an interaction with a, with a very obese woman, very kind woman, breathing through air tubes. And after she said she would vote for Obama and we were saying goodbye, she, t- she grabbed my friend Josh and she said, you know, like, um, can you please tell him that, you know, I've been laid off and, and, and I'm going to lose my health care and I don't know how I'm going to survive. And I don't know, that was, it, there was something so, soul-crushing about the naivety of her appeal, the idea that Josh had any kind of influence, you know, the, the, the dire nature of her circumstances. And that, again, it struck me as, what is this thing that unites her and Josh in a white experience? I couldn't see it, you know? And mm-hmm. what, was, what was it that was supposedly, that my circumstances were separated from Josh's because, because I was supposedly in a black experience and he's in a white experience? It seemed to me that color and race were not ideas that could that could explain uh, the urgency of these realities or certainly not alone yeah i mean this is something that i find in circumstances far less extreme than that but it, i think the truth of the matter is, is that many of us are living already in a post-racial world it's not to say that we're not getting occasionally dragged back into the old world by conversations on this topic but I mean, the people who I feel I have something deeply in common with are the people who share certain core ideas and commitments to certain norms. I mean, so it's like we are the globalists, right. you know, the cosmopolitans, the people who are who have consciously slipped the yoke of of nationalism and other forms of tribalism, and, and obviously racism or a fixation on racial identity. So, yeah, I mean, I if you tell me what books you love and, you know, what right. shows you watch and what magazines you read and your favorite museum, I, I know I share something with you, whatever else may be true about you and, you know, the, the color of your skin. And these are things I don't share with somebody who 
doesn't have any of those reference points and thinks Trump is a genius. And this is completely orthogonal to race. And again, this is the, this is the experience I have you know, in the presence of someone like Ayan, where it's like the reality of race and racial difference and even nationality and a person's background, you know, the fact that she came from Somalia and used to be a, you know, a Muslim extremist of a sort, you know, someone who thought she would, would have killed Salman Rushdie with her own hands if she'd had the chance and someone who was, who was raised to hate Jews, even though she had never met one and probably had never even met a person who had met one. You know, she's come out of all of that, become, you know, a true enlightenment figure. And now we're citizens of the world. Just, it's so obvious to me that that has to be the end game here, right. socially and morally. And yet we're being dragged back by identitarians of every stripe. But the class dimension comes into play because to be a citizen of the world, you have to have yeah. a certain amount of of opportunity that was certainly missing from both these black and white neighborhoods that right. that I that I canvassed through, and so it's pure privilege. I mean, it's the privilege of education, it's the privilege of money, it's a, you know a, a certain amount of money. I mean, I, I don't think you have to be wealthy. No, you don't actually. But you have to be. You can't be you know beaten down by poverty either, right? So it's right. No, but this is where the inequality that you're talking about before comes to. You know, there's an inequality, and this is why I. I viscerally reject the kind of idea of of blackness as necessarily inherently being ab abject and um, deprived. It didn't didn't come from a wealthy family whatsoever, but I felt very privileged because I came from a family where education was prioritized as though we were kind of an immigrant family. The house was filled with books, and I was taught by both parents who were home eating dinner with me every night that my ticket to self-definition and self-creation was my mind and that there were tests that I was going to have to take and that I was going to need to prepare myself for those tests. And, you know, this was not something that we bought with money. This was something that, that I was very privileged to have as the, the values of my household. You know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, values is, can also be a loaded term, but I just want to say that there's such inequality in terms of what you even know to aspire to. Yeah, and these things yeah. seem to me to be a lot more important in in the shaping of a life than whether when I was seven years old a girl asked me why my hair didn't blow in the wind or something like that. That's a microaggression that you know is certainly. I was wondering why your hair didn't blow in the wind. <laughs> you know, you, you you these things impacted my life much more than than the racism that I did deal with. You know, but yeah, but it seems to me that that was a, that was much more of a privilege than I was deprived. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's one observation in your book or scene where um, you talk about a, a friend of yours who first sees your, your home. And as you say, you, you weren't rich, but your home was full of books. And he took that as a sign that you were rich. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was, there's so many ways in which when we're, we're using racial language to talk about class and values. In this scene in the book, a much tougher kid I played basketball at the park all the time, and I sometimes, you know, made friends with lots of different people that came in the house and maybe came in one time and didn't really know my family. But this kid only came over once, and he, and he, he it, was, it was a combination of the books, and it was something else that he racialized. My mother was, we had a tiny house. It was full of 15,000 books. We had no living room. My father had turned the living room into his study, <laughs> and the entire house was essentially spilling with books. But my mother was standing in the kitchen 
baking cookies. And he looked at her and she was, she was cheerful. And it was the combination of looking at the books and looking at my mother. And he said, damn, y'all are rich. And it was something that I've never forgotten. And, and, and I, there's some aspect of, it's almost as though whiteness itself was the, the physical manifestation of a cheery mood or something mm -hmm. like that. But that's not, that's not blood and skin either. You know, we, we're using racial language to talk about something much different. We're talking about, yeah, my mom's cheerful in a way that my father never could be. But that's not racial. That's a matter of, that's experiences that my father went through. That's experiences that my mother went through. That's, that's lots of different things. But it's not white and it's not black. And, and, but, but it intrigues me the way that we use these words. I, I also juxtapose in the book my first, my college girlfriend, who was, who was really influential in my thinking about how complicated identities can be, was a girl who was much darker than me, but her father was Nigerian and her mother was from northern Italy, but very poor, very poor Italian side. And her mother was an immigrant and she never mastered English and she never got a college education. And the idea that my mom and her mom were both white uh, was something that, uh, that, that my girlfriend like laughed at. She, she said, your mom is white. My mom is an immigrant. And I, I always thought about that, you know? <laughs> hmm. Because what she's, talking about, what she's talking about is a kind, of, a kind of cultural capital or a kind of belonging, a kind of ease in the society that's, that's not the same as having an eye color or a hair texture or a skin color. Well, one consequence of the boundaries being fuzzy here and, and open for anyone's powers of self-definition to define is that people can just presumably define themselves more or less however they want. And so I'm wondering what you think of or what you thought of the, the, the Rachel Dolezal incident and whether you were, were you aware of the, do you know the uh, philosopher or um, academic uh, Rebecca Tuval who, who got yeah, destroyed yeah, for yeah, her essay? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so just to, to remind listeners that Rebecca Tuval, I forget what university she was at, but she wrote a... For Hypatia, right? For the journal? Yeah, she wrote a, a for a feminist journal, this paper discussing Rachel Dolezal, and uh, Rachel Dolezal is, is a woman who was working, you know, a, a woman born from white parents who claimed to be black and passed as black and was running a, I think, a regional chapter of the NAACP before she was discovered or outed by her parents. In Spokane, Washington, yeah. Yeah, and the response, as far as I can tell, to her pretense of blackness was not at all appreciation for the the solidarity she felt with the black community it was just she was reviled and kind of cast out and that this is back to rebecca tuval's paper she was comparing this to what happens to transgender people who they decide you know, a man can decide that he's a woman in the wrong body and vice versa and we celebrate this and in, in the, the relevant case there was caitlin jenner so she was comparing the two cases here and, and just asking the question, why can't, if transgenderism is a, is a thing, why isn't trans racialism? And it's an interesting question for which she was promptly defenestrated by the... Um, Many academics signed a letter. Yeah. And, and was, the, it, the article it, was pulled, I believe. Yeah. Uh, the, the response was amazing. Kind of, yeah. After being accepted, the article was pulled, which is pretty crazy. But... Um, I've never understood exactly why, but you're not, from both sides, you're not to make this comparison, even though 
it screams <laughs> to be made, yeah. you know, um, even though, of course, it's not exactly commensurate, but it, there is obviously some type of thought experiment that makes sense. But, you know, I, about Rachel Dolezal, I think that if you're going to actually take seriously the idea that race isn't real and that we're, we're, what we are really talking about is, is culture and affinity and solidarity and, and, and all these different things, but there's no biological reality to it, then I don't think that you can police these things the way that people want to have it both ways. It's either a, a construct or it's not. She certainly didn't come from a black history, but in many ways she started living what would look like a black life. I mean, she went to Howard, although she was white at the time that she was at Howard. She began working for the NAACP. I believe she has a black adopted sibling and she has mixed race black children. Right. So right. She had begun to live many of the experiences, and she was passing. She was physically altering her appearance. So she was, she was living a kind of black experience that I think, um, if it's not biologically real, we have to kind of accept on, in, with, the same, with the same kind of politeness that we would accept uh, a transgender person. That's my instinct for that. I don't, mm. I'm not so clear on why in academia it's so verboten to compare the two experiences. Maybe you, maybe you... Well, it seems to cast into doubt the legitimacy of transgenderism by... Oh, is by, that the... That was the... I see. I, th I think that's one... And at the same time, make race less durable a property of a, other people who have no question that they belong in that category. So basically, you're, you're saying that you know, anyone can be black if they just like hip-hop enough, so there's really nothing about the black experience that is sacrosanct. And you're also saying that transgenderism is, can be as frivolous a, a move as that, you know? That's, what, that's the, the side I wasn't... That's the, that's the kind of implication of frivolity on the transgender side that is what got everybody so upset I, with I think so, yeah. Movie. I didn't... Yeah, yeah. I did that. I actually had this conversation not so long ago at a tape, at a dinner with a lot of people I didn't know, and I was asked what I thought about Rachel Dolezal, and I said pretty much the same thing I just said to you, and it was like I had said something really, really bad. I mean, people got very, very uncomfortable and kind of, <laughs> I was left talking with my friend, and the, the people that had asked me just kind of like transitioned into another conversation and didn't want to follow up on it at all. I mean, it's something that you're really not... You're, Rachel Dolezal is not someone you're, you're not supposed to take her, the proposition that she could be doing this in anything other than the most uh, ridiculous way. You're not supposed to take that seriously at all. But I, 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 I want to say it was one of the Field sisters. There were some serious black academics who argued at the time that if race isn't real, then, then, then we can't police this. Yeah, and this is one reason why I'm uncomfortable with the race isn't real summary. Because ancestry is real, so like it's a totally coherent thing to say that. I mean, just imagine you, you you do the twenty three and Me test, and you find out that you know surprise surprise you don't have any you know sub Saharan African ancestry, but you've got you know a ton of you know fifty percent South Indian ancestry, right? So either your dad isn't your dad in that case, or He's mistaken about his his ancestry. I mean, it's, it's totally possible. I mean, not likely, but certainly they're South Indians who are as, you know, as dark skinned sure. as any person from Sub Saharan Africa. And 
you know, let's just say your dad happened to be one of them and who just looked sub-Saharan and did not look South Indian in any other way and had been, you know, mistaken. Now, if that's a coherent human possibility, what are we talking about there? We're talking about confusion about his ancestry. One way of summarizing that is it's confusion about, you know, his racial background. To me, that's all the work the word is doing when we put it in a sentence. We're talking about the preponderance of a person's ancestry. And so this is why when someone like Rachel Dolezal says, well, you know, actually I'm black, when she's got two white parents who, if you trace their their ancestry back, they, you know, let's just say they're, you know, Northern European, and it goes nowhere near Africa for 50,000 years, it just seems like a a lie or or a delusion, right? Like you, you can, yeah, I you, see it somewhat differently. I, I I see what you were describing as ancestry and cultural tradition and 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 family history, but I see what she did, and I I think of, at this point just potentially infuriating all groups, but I see it more along the lines of somebody who converts into a Jewish identity and then goes about living a Jewish life. Mm. even if they came from a Catholic background or a black background. I mean, I know people from multiple walks of life who have become Jews. And there is some, I think that there is some disagreement about the degree to which they are authentic Jews. I imagine that there are some Orthodox Jews who reject that you can become Jewish if you didn't grow up. And and certainly rabbinical law necessitates that your mother be Jewish. But Right. Others of us believe that you can become an authentic Jew well, that, in adulthood. Yeah, but there, there I would argue that what's confusing is that Judaism is, is also, you know, even principally a re- religion and a set of, you know, ideas and, and cultural practices. But an ethnicity and, as well, right? Yeah, but it, so insofar as it's an ethnicity, it's harder to don it, you know, by decision. And certainly if you went so far as to say, okay, well, now that I'm Jewish, I, I should probably get tested for... Tay-Sachs disease (laughs) before I have kids, right? Then you've actually lost your mind. So, and in Dolenzal's case, it just wasn't clear if she had been articulate about right. She's a she's a deluded person or a hustler or some combination of the two. Yeah, right. Like if she just said, "Listen, this is the culture and the people for whom I feel a real affinity. This is what I you know I, I wish I had been born." To a black family, I I wish my skin is darker than it is, and I, this is this is just how I want to live, right? There'd be a level of kind of self insight that that was lacking from her case, yeah, yeah. But just to say I'm black and those white people who claim to be my parents are lying is is a hard argument. <laughs> it was yeah, it was the it was the the trickster aspect of it. She had um she had just slipped into the black community on false pretenses, and then when people found out, I think they felt right. that yeah, they wouldn't have given her. That kind of position of authority in the community, if they knew, but uh, right. but but I think that the challenge she poses to our categories is still one worth. It's not frivolous to think about it or to to linger with it, and maybe yeah. somebody else will do it in a more authentic way that will really challenge um, the way we think about these these boundaries. Yeah, there's another interesting subplot here, which you talk about briefly in your book, which I don't know how to summarize this. Essentially, it's the the unhappy algebra of marriage in Various communities where you know, mm-hmm. at the extreme, it's when you look at intermarriage and the dynamics there, there are two groups that seem disadvantaged black women and Asian men who marry outside their community at a, at a much lower rate than you know Asian women or, or black men, and also find it 
presumably find it more difficult to find mates if you, I mean, just, you just do the math. How do you think about that? I mean, I know this is, I know far less about how this is perceived in the Asian community, but in the black community, there's no question this is, has been a source of resentment, you know, certainly from black women toward black men and, and toward white women. Right, because in America, that's typically the way the, the pairing goes. Whereas, yeah. whereas in Europe, you see more white men, you see, I want to say, not more than the other way around, but you see more than in America, white men with black women. Right. I mean, the, the case where this fact became extremely salient, I remember you, this might be a little bit before your time, but I remember during the OJ trial, there was a New Yorker piece. I'm, I wonder who wrote this. I'm sure it's some someone who's well known to me, but I just forgot who wrote it. Actually, it was, probably was Jeffrey Tubin. There was a New Yorker piece summarizing the experience of jury selection, and you know, when Marsha Clark mm-hmm. and Chris Darden, and they were, they were getting ready to try the case and going through these weeks of, of jury selection, doing lots of focus groups before impaneling the jury. And essentially, they knew before the trial even started that they had lost the case. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because of how black women viewed Nicole the murdered blonde woman, you know, O.J.'s wife, because amazingly, when asked to rate their level of sympathy for you know, all the people involved, you know, from O.J. on down, O.J. through all, all the lawyers and you know, everyone who could be you know, viewed as a protagonist in this case, and then including the victims themselves, they found Nicole the least sympathetic person on the list, right? And so, and so they just knew that if, I believe it was put this starkly in the article, that if there was a single black woman on the jury, they had a serious problem on their hands. And I think there were like three or four among 12. And I mean, that's such a startling fact that you could get a poll result like that, that Nicole is the least sympathetic person in this situation when she was you know, nearly decapitated by someone, whether you think it was OJ or not. Right. Yeah. I mean, what's your... I mean, I hesitate, <laughs> I hesitate to, to venture into into O.J. Simpson. Yeah. Well, that, it, I, I guess this is idiosyncratic with me. This is the first time I realized, whoa, something's going on here that, that I didn't even know was possible. But now you're living, now you are the, both the progeny of an interracial marriage and in one yourself. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my mother tells me that, I mean, my parents got together just a few years after Loving v. Virginia invalidated nationwide so-called racial integrity laws. So, when they were together, I mean, that was not the most common thing. And she tells me that there was certainly, you know, the idea that a well-educated, you know, that a, that a very marriageable black man ended up with her was certainly disappointing to, to, to some black women that they encountered. That's, that's for sure. Others welcomed her in. But, you know, I can understand that. And what I wrestle with in the book is that it's kind of, you know, in some ways a game of musical chairs because for whatever the reason is, and you can get into lots of psychological, you know, research on this, I'm sure. For whatever the reason is, black women don't want to marry out of their group. I'm not sure. I really don't know if it's a reaction to uh, racial prejudice or if, if, if it's also just a preference, but black women are one of the most loyal demographics. Asian women are the least in-group loyal of, of any demographic. Asian women marry out at something. At, at times, it's been like 35%, 36% or something like that. 
like extraordinary numbers of, of, of interracial marriages with Asian women. Black men marry out of the race at something like 24, 25%. So they're just, if black women don't marry non-black men, a certain number of black women don't have a partner. And then if you combine that with like the extraordinary, extraordinarily skewed percentage of black men of marriageable age who are imprisoned, I mean, there's really a lack of, uh, there's a lack of possible pairings, right? Yeah. So the thing that I try to really come back to over and over again is this kind of tension between life, which is lived on the individual level. You know, I, I, I didn't meet a white woman. I didn't meet a French woman. I met this particular woman who I fell in love with and wanted to have a family with. You don't marry color category, but I also on some other level was aware that, um, you know, I had had plenty of black girlfriends and for whatever reason, I didn't marry one of them. And when I was getting married to my wife, when we were um, engaged and after the wedding, I realized that all of those ex-girlfriends of mine still were not married. And, you know, on some level, I was aware that um, there is something that seems, you know, Glenn Lowry <laughs> told me I didn't even need to, I didn't, I don't owe anybody an explanation of this. I didn't need to, you know, apologize for this or account for this. But on some level, I was aware that, um, that I'd participated in some much larger trend that left a certain group uh, with the short end of the stick. Yeah, and you, you recount being self-conscious about this in a way that's fairly comical because you're, you're invited to have dinner with a, a black writer who you admire, a man who, whose name escapes me, and, and you're worried about taking your white wife with you to dinner only to find that that he's got a white wife who you didn't, you didn't know about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to, I had written something in the times that I'd gotten some criticism for, and Ishmael Reed, the great writer, emailed me out of the blue and invited me to a party. He said he was going to be in Paris, and it was, a, it was at the house of David Murray, um, a well-known jazz musician. And I, I it's really the only time this happened, but I just, I was newly married to my wife and I didn't know Reed at all on a personal level. And I just uh, kind of found myself making excuses for why my wife couldn't come. And at some point she said, you don't want to bring me, do you? <laughs> That's fine. And so I ended up going by myself and, you know, I, I come in and I'm thrilled to meet Ishmael Reed. And then at some point he says, you know, let me introduce you to my wife. And she's, <laughs> she looks just like my mom. Right, right. So... What are the prospects that in our lifetime we will get to this, even if we can't call it post-racial, because the, the phrase has been so um, denigrated, we get to a time where none of that is surprising or even interesting. And I mean, the analogy that I keep using, I don't know if it runs all the way through, but it, to a first approximation, it, it works for me. I think we want to live in a world where skin color and ancestry is like hair color. Exactly. Like, these, are, these are facts we notice about people. They can be, you can talk about the fact that you're blonde or, or a brunette or, you know, and you can decide to care about your hair and can take a lot of time on your hair. But at no point does anyone get so confused as to think that hair color is an important variable politically. And no one will ever take an inventory and say, well, it's a problem that Google, there are exactly 7% redheads in our society, and we just took a close look at Google, and you know they only have 4% software engineers who are redheads. So there's clearly a, 
bias against redheads there that we got to work through. You know, you have advertised your mental illness if you think that, and that's obvious. Now, is it conceivable that we could get to a world in our lifetime? I mean, who knows? Anything's conceivable in a hundred years, but I guess I'm talking about America. I mean, your 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 vantage point in Europe is useful because you you can see what's possible given slightly different variables in a, a first world society. But do you think in in the states we can get to a place where race is behind us? I I know that it's possible. I believe I have to believe that it's possible. You know, there's research that's been done into this. There's a study by Robert Kurtzman, John Tooby, and Lita Cosmides, if mm. I'm pronouncing those names correctly, yeah. called Can Race Be Erased? Conditional Computation and Social Categorization. And in this paper, which was from the early 2000s, they argue that race, sex, and age are things that have been coded into the brain that we, that we use as as prompts for, for understanding how coalitions. You know, this is like, we read coalitions through race, sex, and age. And they did a bunch of different tests on different subjects. And the two categories that could not seem to be unlearned were sex and age. You can't look at an old mm. man and, and, and have that knowledge disappear. But they found that very quickly, you actually could get people to really de-emphasize the amount to which they thought racial characteristics aligned with coalitions. You could change coalitions up in which a way that gender and age were so relevant, but race diminished. And the Hmm. conclusion that they drew was that we've evolved over thousands of years, and for most of the time that we evolved, that our brains were evolving, we never encountered anything like a different race. I mean, everybody was in very tight groups of people that basically looked like each other, except that they were men and women, or they were old and young. And that this kind of newer kind of physical difference in multicultural societies and and, in the collision of Africa and Europe that happened through the slave trade these kinds of racial differences that we now think of as being essential to us, those were like learned shorthands for what were essentially coalitions. So I, this type of research gives me a lot of hope that were we to want to, we certainly could get to a point where the melanin in your skin, in your epidermis, means no more than the melanin in your iris. I mean, this was a question James Baldwin asked too. Like, why, do, why does melanin only matter in the epidermis but not the... Not, mm. the not the iris or in the hair follicle. I mean, I really do believe it's possible, but I think that right now we're so incentivized to dig deeper into these categories and to kind of, I think, uh, mistakenly think that we can reclaim them, that I'm not at all certain that it's inevitable. And I'm also pretty convinced by my own life experiences with white family members back in the States who are Trump voters and, uh, you know, who I interact with you know, on social media more than in real life. I, 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 I'm pretty convinced that the mere fact of existing in interracial families and mixed race families and, and being related to and knowing people of different races is not going to solve these problems. It's just not inevitable that, mm. that mixing, and we are becoming a much more mixed society. Mixed race babies, I believe, are the fastest growing demographic, but this will not solve the problem. It's going to have to be. It's going to have to be something that we decide to do. I think. And right now, I, I I am a bit disappointed. I don't know that the will is really there. Well, I must say, I find the claim about ageism rather triggering. So I'm <laughs> I'm now going to identify as a 25 year old man, and uh, and put Cosmides and Tubi to to the test. <laughs> well, listen, to, Thomas, it's been great to talk to you. I, I just think the work you're doing is 
hugely valuable. And because of everyone's fixation on race, you're among a very few people who I know who are able to do this work in a way that is effective. So, I mean, you, you're among, I, I first heard of you through Glenn Lowry, who I admire immensely. Me too, yeah. I think it was your, your London review of Coates' book that uh, I first read. And, but, you, you know, you're on a short list of people who are out there talking about this in a way that is moving us into a, a kind of, you know, transcendent humanism that Lowry is uh, urging us to, to embrace. And it's just, it's important that you, you keep at it because there's not a lot of basic human sanity coming from the left at the moment. And it's, I'm convinced, going to continue to energize the right and the craziness that is Trumpistan. <laughs> and we, we have to figure out how to break the spell. And I don't really see any other way apart from having conversations like this with people like yourself. I'll love to talk to you again when we when the other shoe drops politically in America. But, you know, this problem is, isn't going away, whatever happens in November. And um, I just urge you to keep going. Well, thank you so much, Sam, and thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate it.